The following sermon was delivered on September 12, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled, Our Redeemer, Light to the Nations, on Isaiah 49, 1-13. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Each and every day, you confront problems. Problems in the workplace, problems at home, problems with your body, problems with your spirit, problems with your children, problems with your husband, with your wife, whatever it may be, you confront problems in need of solutions. How you solve a particular problem depends upon both what needs to be done and why it needs to be done. For example, when you're thirsty, what do you need to do? You need to drink water. And so what do you do? Well, you go fill up a cup with water and you drink it to satiate your thirst. Now, why do you do that when you're thirsty? Just to gratify a desire or a need? No. Ultimately, it's so that you can be healthy. We need water in order to survive as human beings. We're dependent upon water in that sense. That's a very simple problem with a very simple solution for most of us anyway here in America. But what do you do with more complex problems? Problems that require multiple action steps to get to an ultimate solution. Well, in that case, you would have a project. And projects typically need a plan. In God's work of redemption, he's executing a divine project plan for redeeming his creation from sin and death. It's a very complex problem with a very complex solution. As part of his plan, he confronts all manner of complex problems in need of solutions discreetly. Well, in our passage tonight here in Isaiah 49, God confronts the problem of his people's exile due to sin. But as important and, and as complex as that problem is, the fact that Israel has been, is going to be carried away into exile in Babylon, the solution is actually but one step in the project to redeem all creation from sin and death as it was introduced in Genesis chapter 3. A project that actually culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ as presented to us in the New Testament Gospels. Beginning tonight, I'll, I, will, I plan to bring five introductory sermons to prepare for an extended series through the Gospel of Matthew and central to Matthew's gospel presentation of the person and work of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies concerning the servant of the Lord, described in four places in particular. Isaiah 42, 1-4, Isaiah 49, 1-6 in our passage, Isaiah 50, 4-7, and then Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, the suffering servant passage. These four passages taken together are called the servant songs or servant poems, and they're included in what one commentator calls the Gospel of Isaiah, extending from the beginning of chapter 40 through chapter 57, in my, in my view. Well, in this glorious portion of God's Word, God unveils His plan for addressing Israel's sin and resultant exile from His holy presence 
In chapters 40 through 48, the focus is on God's reversal of um, Israel's exile through the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, who conquers Babylon and then restores the people of Israel to the promised land, allows them, in fact, funds their building project to rebuild the temple. And that would actually take place 170 years after Isaiah's prophetic career and ministry. But one of the themes developed through the book of Isaiah is that God's plan for addressing Israel's sin and exile is, as I've said, part of his plan to redeem all creation. And along the way from point A to point B, you pass through the extension of his redemption, of salvation to all the nations, to all peoples, to every tongue and tribe and family under heaven. And so in chapters 49 through 57, the focus shifts from Cyrus, who is a servant of the Lord, to an individual, as yet unnamed, who will work deliverance from sin for all nations. An individual who will live about 700 years after Isaiah's ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ. He, about whom we will read for many weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. So from Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13, which begins this section uh, with the second of the four servant songs, where the focus is really on this servant of the Lord, I'll begin to lay the groundwork for Matthew's Gospel by showing you that your Redeemer is the light to the nations in his person and in the effect of his work. Your Redeemer is the light to the nations in his person and in the effect of his work. We'll look at this under two headings. The first six verses, that servant song, will see the person of the servant redeemer as light to the nations. And then uh, from verses 7 to 13, we'll see the effects of the redeemer's work as light to the nations. So first, considering the person of the servant redeemer as light to the nations, look at, uh, look at verse one with me there. We're going to see three features of this servant of the Lord. The first feature is that all people must give him heed. All people must give him heed. They must listen to him. Look at how the passage starts. He says, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Who is he addressing? The islands. What is that about? Well, that's a very typical reference to all the nations outside of Israel. And that's backed up and proven by his second name for them, you peoples from afar. But what we won't catch unless we go back a little bit in Isaiah is that he's actually borrowing language from Yahweh himself. Look at Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1, where God himself, the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, addresses the nations. And he says, coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain a new strength. Do you see the similarities in the language there? So this servant of the Lord bears authority like Yahweh does. That's the first reason why all people must give him heed. Second reason, he's sent by Yahweh, not as a usurper like the king of Assyria in Isaiah's time, but rather as one sent and legitimated by God. Look at the second half or the second part of verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb. What does this tell us about him as one to whom we must give heed? 
He's sent by God himself. I mentioned that the king of Assyria, I think his name was Tiglath-Pileser II. That's a funny name. We're not going to name our new child that anytime soon. But this Tiglath-Pileser II came into power in Isaiah's day through usurping the throne. And so what would have been on the mind of the people that Isaiah is giving this prophecy to is that this leader, unlike unlike the wicked man of Assyria, this leader is one who is sent by God and legitimate and thus worthy to be listened to. Thirdly, look at the last part of verse 1. From the body of my mother, he named me. This one who is to be listened to is born of a woman. Why is that Why is that important for us? Earlier in Isaiah's prophecy, in the first part of his prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we hear about or we anticipate uh, this one who's going to come doing the Lord's work to redeem his people. And this is what we read about him. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And so with that fresh on our minds, we come to Isaiah 49 and we hear that from the body of my mother, he named me. We should be thinking of this one who was born of a virgin and given a very important name, God with us in Isaiah chapter seven. Yet another reason to give him heed. Moving then into verse two. Look at verse two with me. We have really two statements given in two different ways. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. These two statements, or four statements, depending upon how you look at it, really say the same thing twice, don't they? It goes A, B, A, B. He has made, he has made. He has concealed, he has hidden. And what does this tell us about him? He's made by God. He's being prepared by God to do what? He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. He's being prepared by God as a prophet to speak the will of God to God's people. If God himself is sending one to speak his will to the people, should you give him heed? Of course. It's yet another reason. It's it's part of this argument he's building as to why all the peoples should be hearing him, should be listening to him, be giving rapt attention to his words. But it's not just that God is preparing him or making him to speak. It's that he is precious in the sight of God. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. You might think that it's like, you know, you, you, when I have one of my children and we're in the sun, particularly Samuel, when I'm taking him out of the car and I shield his eyes from the sun with the shadow of my hand. That's a very tender picture, but that's not really what's being described here. What's being described here is more he holds him in his hand to put him to use. Yes, he's precious, and he's also useful to him. He's been hidden in God's quiver. That's the thing on your back where you put all the arrows as an archer. He's being hidden. He's he's ready to be set loose upon the nations to declare the will of God, but yet he has been set there with care. And it's it's a picture frequently that's tied to God's tender, loving care for his children. He's been prepared by God to speak because he's special to God, thus we should listen to him. And then finally in verse three, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. 
There's a lot of discussion about this verse. Is, is this servant of the Lord just a personification of the, the nation? No, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here as the servant is identified to Israel is that as God's servant, this one, this one born of a woman, this individual, this, this person, this man, is as Israel was called to be, is what Israel was supposed to be, faithful to God, a servant that brings glory to his master, and thus why it's tied, in whom I will show my glory, as what God said to this servant. A few applications we can make from just this first feature of, of the servant of the Lord is one to whom all people must give heed as he's laid out this argument for us. First, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Christ is the head of the church. He's the embodiment of God's people. In our text, he's presented to us as the servant of the Lord and what God sets apart his people to be. How does this relate to you and to me, to all those who call upon him in faith and are drawn into his church, uh, brought into the visible membership of the church as an expression of the invisible membership in God's church? All those who trust in him bear this name. Israel, the church, God's people. You bear his name just as our children bear their parents' name. You bear it with honor. If the son of Joe Smith goes and commits a heinous crime and it gets plastered all over the news, that dishonors Joe Smith's name, even if the son's name is Mike Smith. And in the same way, if the son of Joe Smith goes off and does some great philanthropic deed and brings much good to the people, doesn't it bring honor to his father? How much more must we then act as those who are operating under the headship of Christ, having his name set upon us and bearing it. And part of honoring him is listening to him when he speaks. As we heard this morning, giving heed to his directions, particularly in our worship, but in every area of life. The other application I wish to make is that you cannot... I repeat, you cannot reasonably resist the force of the servant's argument here. And for very one simple reason, the argument as I've laid it out may not be altogether convincing because of, of the way I presented it, but at the end of the day, keep this in mind, he is a prophet sent from God. He speaks with greater authority and force of argument than I could ever muster as a mere man and than you could ever muster as a mere man. And because he speaks as a prophet sent by God, he speaks authoritatively and persuasively. Insofar as his spirit bears witness to this fact in your heart, you must submit to the force of his argument and give heed to him. The second feature that we have from him in uh, this first part in the servant song is in verses 4 and 5. He is truly human. This point is made for us. Look at verse 4. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. In verse 4, at the beginning, we see that this is one, an individual who is deeply humbled in the frustrations of humanity. When we think of our own doctrinal standards, um, immediately what comes to mind is Westminster Shorter Catechism 27, and what does Christ's humiliation or wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? 
Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Does any of that sound encouraging to you? That's a deeply frustrating narrative of life. We confessed it in the creed tonight too. And and that expression of it found in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, in in every great confession regarding the Lord, Orthodox confession, I should say, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this recounting of his humiliation, his taking to himself a human nature and bearing all of our infirmities yet without sin. He is one who has been humbled in the frustrations of humanity. He is truly human. But more than that, look at what he declares in the second half of verse 4. Yet surely, surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. In spite of all these frustrations, in spite of all the setbacks, in spite of all the rejection which he experienced, in spite of the fact that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born into this world as a Galilean peasant and not as some great emperor, yet he declares his faith in God. He is perfectly faithful and true as a perfect man. Westminster Shorter Catechism 33 fleshes this out for us, why this is important for you and for me. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight. Why? Only for the righteousness of of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Brothers and sisters, in our, in our verse right here, we see the great hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. That he's not just a man who suffered with us and can sympathize with us, as glorious and mysterious as that is. He's a perfect man, a true man. He is more human than any of us. And because of that, because of his meritorious work imputed to us, in his sacrificial atoning death, we can have this very same assurance that surely the justice due to me by merit of Christ is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. My friends, if you're here and you are yet to trust in him, I'll set before you one call and that is those who diligently search for God, who seek after this righteousness will find it in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. And then finally, in the second half, uh, or in um, verse 5, we see some more features of his humanity. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, again emphasizing that he was born to serve the Lord in the work of redemption, as it's going to be presented to us, to bring Jacob back to him. That's the redemptive work. So that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He's born to serve the Lord in the work of redemption, where sin divides unholy humanity from a holy God, as Isaiah has presented him again and again. The servant of the Lord unites them by reconciling man to God. And then this parenthetical statement, I I appreciate how the New American Standard puts this into parentheses at the end of verse 5. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength, simply shows us that this man is one who is honored by God and the God in whom he trusts. 
And so still, even though we understand Christ to be fully God and fully man, as a man, he depended and trusted in his Father perfectly, thus being the perfect man. Although the name Israel is used here in this description of Jesus Christ, of the servant of the Lord, the servant's not a mere personification of the nation, as I said. Rather, as verses 4 and 5 make very clear, we are reading about an individual redeemer, a man who was born of a woman, born to serve, born to be honored by God. That's incredibly important. If you do an in-depth study of Isaiah at any time in your life, you will find a lot of scholars, some purportedly conservative biblical scholars, who take the servant of the Lord in this passage and others to be a personification of the nation. No, it is clear from the text, and I hope I've made it clear, that this is an individual person brought into the world through uh, ordinary, or not ordinary, extraordinary generation, through virgin birth, but yet through a woman to live as a man. Don't forget that. If you're putting your hope in a nation or in the church, you might as well be a papist. But this, we are called to put our hope in a man, a perfect man, the one and only perfect man. Secondly, let's take a moment, consider the humiliation of the servant expressed at the beginning of verse 4. The humiliation of Christ. We are not able to fathom, to understand the psychology of the God-man. At once, he was ever and always assured of victory in his mission. He never doubted that he would attain to the joy set before him. It was for that joy that he went to the cross. And yet, he experienced, as a man, discouragement, frustration, mental pain, and anguish and agony, even despair. We, think, we, we, th we only need to think uh, of the Garden of Gethsemane. Him uh, sweating drops of blood in agony at, at the pending uh, separation from the Father that he would experience. Even despair, albeit sinless despair. What is the usefulness of this great mystery that these two things are held together, assured of victory, and yet racked by agony? He who knew that God's purposes could not fail and yet could say, I have toiled in vain in other statements of the like. Why, this is to teach us that Jesus our Lord is a sympathetic Lord. What the author of Hebrews says is a sympathetic high priest. Who is the Christ to whom you turn when you, when you face discouragements in your ministry or in your life? When you're faint of heart and you're nervous and anxious as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, do you reach out into a dark void occupied by some unknowable and disinterested spirit being? No. No. You approach the Lord Jesus whom our text makes plain to us, one who knows and knows intimately well your pain and your discouragement and your frustration, one who can sympathize with you. Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, shares our nature, not our sin nature, but our human nature. We mustn't forget that, particularly in our prayer lives. The third feature here. And the servant song is in verse 6, where God's speech is continued. After this parenthetical statement in verse 5, we have God's speech. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light 
of the nations, so that my, my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Not only is, uh, is this servant of the Lord uh, one to whom we must give heed, and also one who is truly human, but he is one who is destined for greatness. Destined for greatness. He's destined to raise up and to restore the remnant of Jacob and Israel. Consider Isaiah's audience in chapters 40 to 57. In chapters uh, 1 through 39, he's addressing the nation broadly. He emphasizes the holiness of God, the sinfulness of the nation. He brings condemnation and judgment upon the surrounding nations and the people of Israel. He says to them, even as they watch the northern tribes go into exile during his lifetime, he says to Judah, don't get high on your horse. Don't get on your high horse, I should say. Rather, this is going to happen to you. Soon and very soon, you'll be taken into exile too. But then in, in chapter 40, we get into this comfort ye, O comfort my people thing. He shifts. He's no longer addressing the whole visible nation of Israel, the rebellious, uh, wicked people of God who have cast off the holy God and, and set him aside. No, now he's addressing the faithful remnant with comfort and with compassion. And so this verse uh, that he should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel would ignite hope and inflame desire to see this one coming, to save them, to restore them again. Because his audience in this case, the faithful remnant, know he's coming for us, those of us who trust in him. It's not presumptuous. If truly you trust in God, then truly you can have hope when you read verses like this. But notice what he says. It is too small a thing that he should do just this. As great as he would be for doing just that, Isaiah uses this hyperbolic statement. It is too small a thing. It is too light a thing, too trivial, too trifling a thing to restore the captive people of Judah. Rather, as the second half of verse 6 makes clear, he is destined to be a light to the nation to be the hope of salvation for all the Gentiles, in fact, all the world. Notice what he says here. He says, I will also make you, literally, I will give you, I will set you before the nations as a light. I will give you as a light to the nations. Jesus knows this about his ministry, doesn't he? He says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Remember what I said before about him being our head, and in him we participate in this mission. That's an orthodox statement. We know that to be true from Acts 13, 47, where Paul cites this verse to talk about his and Barnabas' ministry to the Gentiles, that they are, they are in fact, um, the instruments of this great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, reaching out to the nations as a light of the world. This is his greatness that he, the servant of the Lord, is destined for. The restoration of the nation of Israel after the exile, in fact, only served to make possible the spiritual restoration of Israel by Jesus Christ. Remember what I said about project plans and a complex plan. You have action steps. This is one action step to get you one step further to redeeming all the cosmos all of heaven and earth, all of creation, which is groaning under the weight of sin and death. 
as great as it was to release Israel from captivity in Babylon, to bring them back into the promised land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet how much greater was it that through this servant of the Lord, not only the land promises would be fulfilled, but that most exquisite promise to Abraham that in your seed you will be a blessing to every family under heaven. The text and its application in the New Testament, particularly in Acts 13, provides the motivating principle for you and for me as faithful believers for all of our outreach and missionary endeavors. We prayed during our time of kingdom prayer, particularly for the outreach of this church into our community. Really appreciate Rachel has has, uh, secured a map of Woodruff from the Spartanburg uh, GIS department, which makes maps of the county. And we're going to go after it, aren't we? But what's going to keep us motivated? The only thing that will keep us motivated is this. Is this right here that his salvation may reach to the ends of the earth through the fact that the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by extension, his church is made the light to the nations. So let us go forth, brothers and sisters, let us go forth as um, a missionary Presbyterian church. How about that? There's Missionary Baptist Church down the road. I think we should adopt that. Missionary Presbyterian Church, a church filled with the radiating light of Christ's gospel a church filled with the Spirit, eager and earnest to go out. It's so easy to grow discouraged in this, and we will grow frustrated at times with each other and with our neighbors. And yet let us remember this great promise that God made to Jesus and has fulfilled in Him. Moving into verse 7 then, in the second point of the sermon, we've seen this person of the servant redeemer as the light to the nations. But we also see now in verses 7 through 13, the effects of the Redeemer's work as light to the nations. The effects of his work. I struggled with the language of this, whether or not to call it the work of the Redeemer or the effects of the work. And I really think effects of the work, though a bit more wooden, captures what's going on in these verses more, uh, more accurately. You have in verse 7 a summary statement. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, quote, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is the Lord God's summary statement about the effect of the servant's work. He identifies with the servant as redeemer. Notice that word redeemer of Israel, beginning of this verse, isn't referring to the servant. It's referring to Yahweh. It's referring to the Lord. But we've just heard about all this redemptive work by the servant. And so we should be making that connection. He's identifying with his servant here. And he maintains his holiness, that great... uh, attribute of God pressed upon us again and again by Isaiah. He maintains his holiness even in the redemption that he works. Even as he comes into contact with us, he's never soiled or defiled. And this this makes up the great summary statement of the accomplishment of redemption that God works through his servant. And what do we see about this salvation? Three things. First, this salvation is a work of redemption and covenant renewal. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you. 
He's referencing that favorable time of the Jubilee year when captives are set free, when, when uh, enslaved Israelites are set free, when land is restored to the families in, uh, in Leviticus 25, verses 8 and following, if you want to check that out later. It's the fullness of time in Galatians 4.4, referring to when Jesus comes into the world. It's the acceptable time of 2 Corinthians 6.2, as Paul references this text again, speaking about when Christ comes. This is the favorable time I have answered you, the day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you, speaking to the servant, for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. There are so many references here. You have the Jubilee, which I've mentioned, but we also have a reference, at least um, by way of just similarity of language, to Joshua's conquest of the promised land, to restoring the land to, to that people to whom it had been promised by God, but then also of the reestablishment of David's kingdom. What do you think it means when it says, I will give you for a covenant of the people? This is God's great gift of his Davidic Messiah and King. And all of that is coming together. All of these, these various aspects of God's great redemptive work in history coming together in this servant of the Lord, in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that fleshed out in Matthew's gospel. At least I'm, I'm going to aim to flesh that out. This work of restoring and making the kingdom anew, this is the servant's work. And then secondly, about this salvation, not only is a work of redemption and of covenant renewal, but it's also a new exodus. Look at verses 9 through 12, where it's describing an exodus here. Saying to those who are bound, who are enslaved, in bondage, go forth. To those who are in darkness, Let's say, in the land of death, maybe. Show yourselves. Bask in the light. Along the roads they will feed, perhaps on manna, and their pasture will be on all bare heights, perhaps in a wilderness. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them as a shepherd perhaps by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day, and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar. And lo, these will come from the north and from the west and these from the land of Sinim. So in the first two verses, you have there a very clear description, allusion to the exodus out of Egypt, don't we? And so in that sense, this work of redemption, this salvation will resemble that. But then in the second two verses, 11 and 12, there's something different about this new exodus. It's not just coming from one place. In verse 12, though we don't know what the land of Sinim specifically is, I think some make a strong case that it's China or just the far, or perhaps the far distant south um, from Israel. The point of the matter is they're coming from everywhere, north and west, and from the land of Sinim, a remote place. And so this new exodus is much greater in scope, and it's being executed by the servant who, as a, as a new Moses, is leading forth the people of God, as a good shepherd, to reference John chapter 10. In Matthew's gospel, this really comes home in Matthew chapter 15 when Jesus feeds the 4,000. We're going to get into this 
when we get into the gospel, but there are seven mountain scenes in Matthew, and they're all very important. They highlight Jesus as a new Joshua. They highlight Jesus as a new Moses. Well, the central mountain, mountain number uh, four, so right in the middle, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, is where Jesus feeds the 4,000. And I want you to, to listen to the language that's used in Matthew 15 to describe this. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. Do you hear the echoes of Isaiah 49 there? The effect of the Redeemer's work is not to just get someone patched up and to send them away hungry. No, he takes care of them. He has compassion on them. He will not send you away hungry if you come to him. This new exodus is a complete and total new exodus, reaching to the ends of the earth, yes, but reaching to the ends of our need and our desperation. Everything you and I need is taken care of by this new Moses, this good shepherd of the sheep, this Jesus Christ who has compassion on a people hungry and starving. Salvation, finally, in verse 13, which we used as our call to worship this evening. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Salvation is the cause of cosmic doxology. The cause for or of cosmic doxology. Notice this grand Isaiah command. He has a lot of these in, in the book of Isaiah. Again, it's, it's parallel. You have A-A-B-B. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For, because the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The salvation of God's chosen people, it's to elicit praise not just from his people, but from all creation. The kids several times this summer, particularly as we were traveling, watched The Sound of Music. And you have that one line in there, the hills are alive with the sound of music. It's a funny scene. But there's something in that picturesque idea, you know, of, of Maria von Trapp or whatever spinning around in the Alps. And you see all these mountains surrounding her. And to think they will ring and resound with the songs of glory and doxology at the revelation of the sons of God, as Romans 8 tells us, that our salvation is a cause for rejoicing of all creation. And that's how the passage ends. You know, as important as the Christ's global mission is, I don't want to downplay the salvation which is wrought for, the, uh, for um, you and for me. You see, his global mission of turning all of creation to glorify God the Father, to redeem and restore the heavens and the earth and all that is within them, it's utterly dependent on this, 
his ability to deliver you and, from, and me from the guilt and power of sin. If he can't deliver us from sin, if he's unable to do that, if he is powerless to do that, he cannot, he cannot accomplish any of this other stuff. This is not just a step, it is a necessary, crucial step. If he cannot deliver you, my friend, from the condemnation of sin, then he cannot be a light to the nations, as described in verse 6. But by his death on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, that servant of the Lord, willingly sacrificed himself to deliver all who would believe on him. In his resurrection, then his ability to deliver you and me from sin is proven. He was raised for our justification in his active ministry to and for us from heaven today as our great high priest interceding on our behalf. He is still at work delivering men and women from sin and its effects. It is his spirit who sanctifies us who releases us from the power of sin in this life. And in this, he shines as the light of the nations. Are you trusting in him? Are you living by his light? Certainly, he has been made known to the most far-off lands of the earth. We were praying for Afghanistan tonight. We're here in North America. To the most far-off lands of the earth, he has been made known by his spirit applying his word and proclaiming it abroad through his servants, that spirit who comforts his people, who expresses the compassion of the Father and the Son day by day, moment by moment, witnessing and testifying to it in our hearts. If you don't believe this, there is one alternative, and that's to face off against his wrath and his judgment against sin, to ally yourself with the sin that is only destroying you. My friend, embrace Christ, the servant of the Lord presented to us in this gospel of Isaiah. In a few chapters, if we were going to be continuing through Isaiah, which is very tempting, by the way, in Isaiah 55:1, we read, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, and without cost. If you face the problem of thirst, what do you do? You come to the waters and you drink. A simple problem yields to a simple solution. But the redemption and restoration of creation, turning all things to the praise and glory of God, is a complex problem that will yield nothing, that will yield to nothing less than a divine uh, plan of action, which we have seen today culminates in your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, as I've sought to demonstrate this evening, your Redeemer, you who believe in Jesus for your personal salvation, He is the light to the nations in His person and in the effect of His work, particularly that work of redemption. He is the light to the nations. In His fully human nature, He's an individual person destined for greatness and deserving of your rapt attention. Must give heed to his word. And then his work of salvation, it's redemptive in nature. It renews that covenant relationship between God and man, that relationship that was severed in the garden and then severed again in the history of Israel. But it's also characterized as a glorious exodus that then inspires all creation 
to give God praise, to sing forth his doxologies. So as we look ahead to the next four sermons leading up to Matthew's gospel, uh, we will, Lord willing, examine in greater detail the work of Christ as prophet, which we spoke about tonight, the work of Christ as priest, which we discussed at some length tonight, and then the work of Christ as king in particular, which we didn't really hit on directly this evening. But then we'll also take a sermon to look at him as the leader of the new exodus, looking at uh, Psalm 130 and the end of Second Chronicles, which should bring us right into Matthew's gospel. And though Christ's work it will figure very prominently in those four sermons, I, I don't want us to lose sight of his glorious person, his great compassion for sinners, his devotion as the servant of the Lord to fulfill and to do all that his Father has commanded him to do. This is how to turn your eyes to him. When you grow discouraged or weary, it's to call to mind, to remind yourself, not just of what he has done, but also of who he is. Who he is, which you know by what he has done and by the testimony of word and spirit in your heart. In calling to mind his goodness and his grace, even as you hope in that finished work which he has done, on your behalf. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.